still meeting right now with uh, masks, and uh, our world right now is not fixed. It's not all the way uh, back to a place that we would recognize as normal. And I believe that it may be quite a season before we ever see anything that we would call uh, normal in the way that we used to understand it. It may never return. But one thing that we have to remember is that we can't focus all of our hopes on this broken world fixing itself. Amen? So we're here to worship the God of the universe. We're here to praise Christ, lift him up, and as we focus our eyes on him, then get the energy from that to impact the world that is still hurting. And so I'm praying that uh, you will not only love the fact that we're back in person, uh, but that you'll minister to each other today and that you'll use this opportunity to connect with uh, those folks that are out there in the world that is hurting. And I know also that we have uh, people that are joining us uh, at home. We're, uh, we're missing you here, but we're aware that there are some that are in great need. They have to still be at home, and it's not safe for them to be in public. We still love you guys as well. I'm going to pray, and we're going to let AJ lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to rejoin in this part of life in this way. We're thankful for the time that we've had in our home churches, for the great fellowship that we've still had worshiping you and getting to know each other in that way. But Lord, we praise you that we can be together in this place, at this time, in this way. We ask that you would hear our worship, fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving, that we can be together, uh, that we can hear AJ and the team, that we can worship like this. And we pray. Uh, that you would energize our hearts to hear the word and to go out and, and to think rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we doing? We doing good? I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit like maybe how David had felt when he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Amen? We're going to worship today. Let's have you stand to your feet. 
Take your seats. It'll be a lot less interesting for the folks at home to watch you greet each other. So we'll make sure that we uh, that we greet them. If uh, you're up in the chapel or you're at home, uh, we're so thankful that you've joined us. But how awesome is it also to be in here together this morning? I, uh, in the middle of the prayer time, 
was just reflecting uh, a verse had come to mind. You know, when we went into this season, we still continued to have home church. We still continued to have fellowship. We still continued to gather together differently, did not abandon that role, but we were in different places. It feels a little bit like we're emerging in phases as we do these, these things here, but the world that we are emerging back into is not the world that we kind of went into the cocoon with. Amen? In fact, there are many of you that are concerned as you begin to take a look at the world that we're coming back into. There are some fears that I'm not sure we'll see ever go away. Uh, our nation is changing. And there are many things right now that uh, should be concerning us at the government level, at, uh, uh, in our own state, in our own city. But I want to remind you of something that Paul said, living in a world that was much like ours, uh, where everywhere he turned, it didn't seem like he was running into a friend. But remember, Paul didn't turn from face to face and see them as a foe. He saw them as another person that was a candidate for heaven. And he said this about his desire to stay faithful in ministry. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus might be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Remember, for whose sake? So that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. As we go out from here, I'm praying that our time in the Word will cause us to reflect so deeply that instead of mourning what we've lost, we will lift up who it is that saved us. Amen? So let's pray, and we'll look at the Word. Father, we ask as... We right now uh, turn to your word that you would show us in another episode where Paul has put you on display, where he speaks to a group of agnostics in Athens. Help us to be captivated with what he said, but Father, help us also to hear it as marching orders for our own day. Help us to be thoughtful, mindful of how to engage a world that is crumbling, that's hurting, that's lost its way. Uh, Father, the things they cling to no longer have staying power. Help us to point them to the cross and to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, reading something uh, this last week about how to teach quantum mechanics to seven-year-olds. I thought he might have something uh, to uh, be able to teach somebody who could preach, and so I was looking at that, and uh, uh, this guy basically had four points. He said, start in the right place. Seven-year-olds have a certain amount of knowledge. You've got to start where their knowledge is and branch out from there. He said, don't go too far down the rabbit hole. Don't get into the weeds of the details. Just hit the fine points and pull them along. He says, clarity beats details. And fourth, he says, explain why it's cool. Paul does all four of these things in Acts chapter 17. He's engaging a world that is looking at him as an oddity. They're saying, who is this guy that's coming in here sharing these things and trying to offer us hope? And he goes through that basic outline. 
as he is sharing with these people who are, by their own words, agnostics. They're not sure if there's anything that they can really believe in. So I want us to look here in Acts chapter 17 as we keep going in our series, Christianity on the Grow. And starting with verse 15, I want us to read. And because we're at live church and we haven't been able to do this for a while, let's stand as we read God's word together, all right? It says this in verse 15, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and they brought him to the Oropagus and they said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath. And all things, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they should live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Since then... We are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That's God's word. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to... Uh, just notice a couple of things this morning, and in particular, I want you to see the way that Paul approached these folks. And the first thing that I want you to see in here is that Paul was filled with compassionate angst. Verse 
Verse 16 says that Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Uh, this uh, word, deeply distressed, has the idea of a paroxysm. He just, it, it almost threw him into convulsions when he saw what was going on. But it wasn't in anger. He was distressed over their souls. He was concerned about what it was that they were worshiping, their lack of knowledge of the one true God, their heart to find something that would make sense of their world. He was filled with compassion. I want you to know that idolatry is the center of Athenian culture. And still today, you can see the remnants of this. There uh, up on, on the heights, uh, on the way to the Oropagus, you see the Parthenon. Um, they worshiped Athena. And in the middle of that place, still, if you go to Greece today and you go to any section that is out around the city and you look down on the city, it rises up just like this from out of Athens. This is a current shot from today, facing, uh, we're sitting on the side that's toward the bay. So they would unload all of their ships underneath the eyes of this God, and the city developed all the way around this hill. It was filled with worship. They say that there were 30,000 gods that you would find on your way up to uh, that great outcropping that was there. And you can even see some of the buildings that were down uh, at the edge, and then down in the Agora, it was the same way. Uh, those little alcoves, every single one of them would have had a God that was overseeing what was being sold uh, or what was being purchased or what was overseeing uh, the thoroughfares that were in that area. All of these pieces of, of ground conquered by a God. They said, uh, their own poets said that there were more gods than men in Athens at that time. But Mars Hill is the halfway point between where they would actually do all of their shopping and where they would do their worshiping. This is a picture of Mars Hill looking down from uh, that uh, big Acropolis there in the center. And this is a, the place where they would meet up on that hill. Uh, you can see on the left-hand side there where some people are gathering. That's actually just a natural place where the limestone is level. And there is a, a meeting place uh, that was there. It's where the philosophers and the politicians met. This was the Athenian Facebook, all right? They would get together there and share all of their conspiracy theories on their way up to worship. But Paul's encounter with the Athenians was so significant that it's memorialized there still today. If you go to Mars Hill, you will actually see this plaque that is welded into the side. It's written only in Greek, and it is just the text of this passage right there on Mars Hill, potentially in the very place where Paul stood place it was carved out so that somebody would be able to share with a group of people. There's no commentary. There's no extra statements. There is just around the corner a little uh, plaque that also memorializes the church that was started uh, with Dionysus there, there, right there, the Arapagite. They have those locations. But this is the place where Paul preached this message. The culture in Athens had filled and informed their faith. Not just for those that were in idolatry, but also for those who claimed to worship the one true God. Idolatry was rampant. It was everywhere. But philosophy was also pervasive. Um, two groups that are highlighted here that were prominent in Athens at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were atheists. 
They didn't know if there were any real gods, uh, but they believed that you had one life and that you needed to pursue pleasure until you were dead. Life was all about pleasure and having your best life now and experiencing all of that in this life. The Stoics followed a teacher named Zeno. They were actually pantheists. They believed there was a multitude of gods. In fact, they believed there were so many gods, your life was not in control. They were fatalists. They actually believed that uh, there was nothing that you could do about the next moment. You just had to live. And their teaching was you have to endure it. Maybe the gods will be pleased with your patient disposition and you can just go through. So they taught endurance. They, they taught, literally, we still have that idea of a stoic face to endure hardship without showing any signs. Two completely different ways of thinking. But also remember that there was a synagogue there. It says, so he saw that the city was full of idols. He was deeply distressed that it was full of idols. He was overwhelmed, so he reasoned in the synagogue. Why does it say that? It doesn't say, so he went to a group of people who didn't think like the Athenians. No. What he says is, every single type of worship was filled with idolatry. The truth was subjective. And the philosophy and false teaching of the day had infiltrated even those who claimed to worship the one true God. Truth was subjective. Before we jump off this point, I I just want to grab our minds and ask you, is it possible that you also have an idol problem? J.D. Greer Uh, in a message he taught called Therefore, just had a few questions that he had asked his audience, and they were penetrating for me. Um, I'll ask you just to, on your own, in your notes, if you take them or in your head, answer these questions honestly. Don't do it out loud. That might be nerve-wracking for the people next to you. First, the thing that I am most worried about losing is... Now, we're in church, so God, Jesus, Bible are not allowable as answers, all right? I want you to think through in your own regular life. What is the thing that you are most worried about losing? What do you concentrate on? Secondly, the thing that I am most worried about never attaining is. What are you trying to become? In the world that's gone wonky right now, what are you afraid that uh, you were heading towards and now you won't be able to experience? Third, if I could change this right now, I would. It might be your looks. It might be your job. It might be something as intense or crazy as your spouse or family relationships. We get very personal when we start saying, if I could change blank right now, I would. Fourth, this has made me the most bitter in life. What is it? What is it that is constantly brought up and then a source of bitterness or irritation or frustration? When you look at the world, people don't understand this about you. They are irritated uh, at you for not getting this, and you become bitter. Here's one. What are you willing to lie for? If you say nothing, it might be the truth, right? It might be you're willing to lie to cover up falsehood. Are you willing to lie about your job, your position? Willing to lie about how well you're doing? 
your weight. This is how that one's settling, COVID. Where do you turn for comfort? What is it that you actually turn on, pour, participate in, run to when you're hurting? And finally, whose approval do you seek? Now, why do we throw all that in there? It gets a little heavy, doesn't it? I mean, welcome to live church, right? (laughs) At least in the living room, we could hit pause and go get a sandwich right now. (laughs) Whose approval do you seek? If you had the same answer for two or three of those things, you might have the roots of an idol. There might be something in your life that is grabbing a hold of you and controlling. It's the thing that you worship, that you are focusing on, that you care more about than anything else in life. You will change your life and alter who you are in order to please that thing or to become acceptable to that thing or issue or person or concern. You see, Paul was filled with concern because he saw that idolatry would never satisfy. It was not putting your hope in the right things. And he wanted to offer them Christ. So how do you speak faith to an agnostic in a world filled with idols? Four things very quickly. First, we must display a respectful understanding of their point of view. A respectful understanding. Verse 18, look at how they respond to him. It actually says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, and some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? In some of your translations, it'll say, what is this babbler trying to say? Or uh, you might have uh, one of those uh, super accurate, like, Greek ones, and it says, what is this seed picker trying to say? The actual idea was the picture of a little tiny bird that was going around in the agora, the place where they would shop, picking up seeds, kernels of actual things. Paul had such an accurate knowledge of what was actually being talked about in all of Athens that he could speak to them their truths, but then twist them and say, here's where you got it wrong. Here's what the truth is. But he knew their position well enough that he could tell them their position in a way that they would hear it and say, he understands where I'm coming from. Don't overlook that. We today do not listen to people who do not think like us very well. We hear another position that is not our position, and we instantly turn on the railing. We instantly turn on the irritation. We instantly turn on uh, the bother. Paul didn't do that. He heard them, and he could say back to them, what they understood. Paul brings up the unknown God, in fact. Uh, In the 6th century B.C., Epimendes had come into the city, and there was a plague that would not stop, and they wanted to have an Olympics there. And so he said, well, I don't know how to stop this plague, but there's so many gods in Athens. Why don't we just release a whole bunch of sheep at the top of uh, the Acropolis, and wherever they stop and huddle or lay down, let's sacrifice them there to whichever god they're laying in front of. And they began to scatter, and one or two sheep would stop here or there in front of this god or that god. But there was a large mass of sheep that huddled up into a, on a patch of ground, shockingly in Athens, that was unclaimed by any god. And so they had built an altar there to an unknown god. And after they had sacrificed the sheep, the plague ended, and they were able to have their Olympics. He brings a salvation story into the equation and says, I even saw an inscription to an unknown God, and he says, and you know the history of this. 
This is the God who stepped in when all your gods had no power. Now let me tell you about this God that actually is a lot more desirous of something from you than, than your sheep. He wants to give you life, and he gave his life in order for you to have it. But an interesting thing that Paul does in the midst of this is he brings up their cultural icons. Uh, he actually quotes a philosopher in his message and one of their comedic plays, one of their plays that was making fun of everything in society. I, I want you to understand he does not agree with the conclusions that these philosophers came to, but he starts there and says, you've heard this, you've heard this, now let me tell you the truth about this. I just want you to hear a couple of phrases. I want you in your own mind to say, hey, man, do I agree with that? I want you to see who said these. It, it would be tantamount to doing this in our culture. I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it is for or who it's against. That's Malcolm X. I don't know if you said agree or disagree, but now you'll say the next one quietly. I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Mick Jagger, there we go, right? How about this? I need to start a program for people who think like me. Don't. <laughs> Homer Simpson, if you have thought in the past you'd like to start a program for people who think like you, you're in good company. Paul actually takes a side trip through some of their thinking, and he says, let me tell you, I've heard this, and I've heard this, and I've heard this, but let me tell you where the truth is. The truth is found in Christ, the one who died for you. We must display a respectful understanding of their view, but we also must speak the truth in their language. Paul answered their philosophy with paraphrased scripture. Let me, let me just share with you a couple, and uh, um, we actually have around here uh, places where you can get the QR code so you can get all of the notes uh, that are here and, and there are more scriptures that are attached to this. Um, but Paul starts at the very beginning of creation and he works his way all the way through to Christ. He says in Isaiah, in, in verse 24, he, he starts at creation quoting Isaiah 42.5. This is what the Lord God says, the creator of heavens who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Did you hear that in Paul's speech? He's just paraphrasing scripture and centering it in his message. Isaiah 66, 1 says, this is what the Lord God said. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me? Where is my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. He talks about separating the nations and giving them an inhabitance. In Deuteronomy, in, in verse 26, Paul does that. In Deuteronomy 32, he says this. Remember the days of old when the Most High gave the nations as an inheritance, when he divided up all mankind and he set the boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Verse 28, he's referring to Job once again. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. In verse 29, he quotes Jeremiah when he's talking about idols and the, the false breath that we put in them. He says, hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord has said. Don't learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the heavens 
as though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer, and he nails it so it will not totter, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Paul just goes through verse by verse, and he begins to speak Scripture in a paraphrased form and answer all of their idolatrous statements. We must speak the truth in their language. I don't know if you've ever been around Matt or some of the guys that hang out with him, uh, but you'll hear a phrase from him on a regular basis, hey, we need to take that to the throne of grace. Did you know that, Paul, that uh, Matt, not Paul, Matt is actually just quoting Hebrews? He's saying a truth to those folks that are hurting and in need of an answer. He's speaking the truth in a paraphrased form. He's saying, we need to do this. And if they say, well, where does it say that in Scripture? He can go right to a verse that actually explains it. We need to be so filled with Scripture that it just pours out of us, even if we don't quote the reference. But third, I want you to see that we must focus on what all people crave. Look at verse 30. Therefore, so he, he tells them, this is what your people have said. This is who the real God is. This is uh, what you need to understand in order to put yourself underneath him. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man that he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What does Paul offer them? Grace and judgment in that order. When we begin to take a look around at the world that we are facing right now, we have to consider our part in the mess. What does Paul do? At that moment, he stops and he knows that sitting there are Epicureans and Stoics, but also people from the synagogue. And he says, you're right. You're craving answers. You are searching for some way to make sense of a world that has gone wrong. You are trying to find peace in pleasure or in Stoicism or in uninformed worship. And he squares them up and he says, but first you need to understand, yes, the world is a mess, but let's deal with your part of making it so. Each one of us has to deal with the fact that if the world is a mess, we are part of the problem. Amen? We're not the only one with the answers. We may have found the answers, but we are part of the problem. And he says he's overlooking that time of ignorance. He says there's grace for this. Just repent. Turn around from the way you are running and thinking and run back to the living God. But then he also preaches judgment. He has set a day when he's going to judge the world. Now, every time we bring up judgment in Scripture, I want to remind you that God, when he talks about judgment, is in a catch-22. If he does not judge the world, we get angry. Why are all these bad things happening? But when God does send judgment on the world, we get angry. Why is God doing this now? Right? God cannot act in a way that we are happy. It's crazy to me that the Avengers can ruin every single city that they land on, and yet we watch all their movies as if they're the greatest, right? They destroy everything. They have answers in an hour. 
we look for judgment. We're actually okay with judgment. We just don't want God to be the judge. We want to be the judge. We fashion people that we can respect, that are made in our image, that look like us, that think like us, and we say they're the ones that should be doing it. But God says, no, one that is completely opposite of you. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I'm coming to judge the earth and put it right. You get right and be ready to meet me. That's what he says. Reorder your thinking. But he offers grace. I want to remind you of something that John wrote down. Jesus is getting ready to leave, and he is teaching his men, and he says something special is about to happen. And he says, you'll begin to see this in the world. Paul was preaching towards this moment, but we see it in our own world today. Jesus says this, it's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, listen to what he says. He will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because they don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin because we all have it. Righteousness because Christ is right now at the Father's right hand. There is right and there is wrong. Do you know that? And he is watching. And judgment, he's coming back to set those things right. What does he say? The sign that the Holy Spirit has moved into the room is that people are aware of their sin. They know that Jesus is the only answer and that if they don't deal with it today, judgment is coming. Paul preaches towards that and watches for the Spirit to move. But finally, and ultimately, we must focus on Christ. It said, he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He doesn't name him, but he does name what he did. He says, and he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus is coming, and he's proved that he has the right to rule and reign by his resurrection. They had been working and working and working, but they still were missing that settled sense of peace. Paul says you can have it. The Daily Mail shares a story about a guy named Jack Harris, a pensioner who could do puzzles uh, just amazingly. His family loved the fact that he could uh, get a puzzle at Christmas and be done with it in just weeks. So they tried to buy him the most complicated puzzle that they could find. It was five feet wide, I think three feet tall. He worked on it for seven and a half years. And you can see at the top part up there, that he gets done seven and a half years later and is missing one piece. Seven and a half years. It was such a significant outcry that was coming from the people around him that they actually put out a plea to the original designer of the game. Well, they no longer made that game. They didn't have any that were left around. They put out a plea throughout England, and eventually, months later, somebody said, I will give you a piece out of my puzzle. They couldn't tell what one it was. They had to ask him, search through all these pieces and find it. Seven and a half years working, struggling with a, a painting that was all in versions of gray. Can you imagine that? The only one more complicated I'd read about, uh, Queen Elizabeth actually was getting bored with how easy puzzles were. So she had them make one out of just a white page and cut it up. And she said she could do that puzzle. Here's this guy 
brilliant, working seven and a half years, missing peace. The scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Paul lands the plane on Jesus and he says, you're running around this city. You're searching idol after idol after idol to try to answer that hole that's in you. But it's not just that you've worked on most of the puzzle and you just have one little missing piece. He actually says you're working on the wrong puzzle. All of those things that you're focused on, all of the things that you have collected, they fit together in kind of an amalgam of answers. But there is only one who can put your life together. And it's Jesus. Some people, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, ridiculed him. But others said, you know what? This makes sense. Two people got saved and a church began in Athens as a result of Paul reaching out this way. What would I have you consider? Today, we got to think about the fact that we're going to leave this place. We have an awesome opportunity this morning to worship and to be together. But we're heading into a world that is increasingly filled with agnosticism and idolatry. And we've got to think about reaching that world in the same way that Paul did. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be able to see the world the way that you see it. Father, help us in this season to be open about where we stand, open about our own idolatry, the things that have crept into our faith that have grabbed our focus and our attention. We've begun to pay attention to those details rather than to you. We begin to worry about the creation of those things rather than your creation. We've begun to think about the judgment of others rather than seeing you someday face to face. Father, I pray that you would help us to think rightly, to hear your thoughts, your heart, your desire, and to yield. And we pray, Father, that offering grace but reminding people of judgment, we would be able to move into a world that is hurting and offer the only answer that will meet the hour, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that boldly, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, folks, you can find the questions. We'll have them here for those of you that are in the room. But also, they are uh, with the QR code. You can get those on your phone and talk about them on the way. But I would have you consider, what are some areas where you see idolatry in your own life? Or how is it that you could show deep concern for the people that are around you? Or is there a scripture that so fills you up that you could paraphrase and be able to share with people that are hurting in this world. Consider those things as you go. Thanks for being here this morning. You're dismissed. Sing I Believe. I